rather you live your life in vanity You traded all your hopes and dreams for insanity I'm Father Harry Dean, a priest of the Diocese of Austin, currently the chaplain at Cedar Break Renewal Center. I'm here with Deacon Ronnie Lastavica, also a deacon of the Diocese of Austin in Texas, in our restorative justice ministry, in which we worked together for many years. Today, we're continuing our series on the topic of suicide, of being able to help those who may be contemplating suicide by recognizing the signs, but also for coping with suicide if someone that you know or love has committed suicide and we're trying to work our way through that. We have addressed a number of topics. Right now, we're in the middle of uh, strategies for healing. And what, what is the next strategy for healing for those who remain behind? One of the next strategies that suggested is to plan ahead. And so rather than avoiding all reminders of the suicide, which can prevent healing, have a plan for dealing with the anniversaries, the birthdays, and the holidays going forward. And while it may be too painful for some, um, give yourself permission to uh, bring some significance of that uh, closure of the um, end of this time with them on this earth to uh, some presence to you. If you have access to a picture of the graveside, I mean, you may not physically be able to visit it, but uh, perhaps, um, or if you have a family member that can go and make a visit to the one's graveside. Um, that could be an important part of the healing, as well as simply spending time in an activity that the loved one enjoyed. So maybe, maybe say, for instance, he enjoyed dominoes, <laughs> and you, you got a domino game going on in the day room. Get involved in it and, and remember your, maybe remember your uncle or remember your dad or remember your brother in that time. Another thing, alternatively, find ways to help others who may be grieving or who are in need uh, can be a helpful distraction as an opportunity to find greater meaning or purpose. So again, it's that take the spotlight off of ourselves and move it to someone else. So again, making early decisions about whether to continue with old traditions, uh, create new ones or suspend them for a while can ease the strain of these difficulties. Let's go back to the the one of helping others. I mean, the sense that we don't do this alone, that, that there's others there that perhaps have experienced the same thing that you're going through. Um, the opportunity to seek that person out and, and to just, just companion them is, is huge. And that's going to be a very helpful thing in, in your planning ahead as you go forward. Giving one's uh, self permission to move forward and to live a, to, to live a rebuilt life does not mean forgetting the loved one, nor is it a betrayal, um, betrayal of his memory or her memory. Although difficult to imagine early on, recovering survivors can create something good out of the devastation. This could include a, a new understanding of the, the appreciation for life and the sacredness that each life holds, uh, a renewal of her faith, advocating for others. It could also mean taking part in a new project or, or taking a class that you've been putting off for maybe a year or perhaps several years or, or finding a, a hobby and making yourself uh, a way into the craft shop so you can be uh, active in that environment. Uh, create projects such as creating a memorial for a loved one through a scrapbook, a, a picture album, a website, or a creating a, um, um, creative expression through the activities such as uh, writing a poultry. And, uh, poultry, or if you're not a, uh, a letter writer, um, a li- writing a letter to the deceased. And, you know, that's one of the 
one of the things that we find most valuable uh, is is our journaling activities about thoughts and feelings, and sometimes um, facilitate, sometimes facilitate healing, healings. So developing rituals can be a very another way of um, honoring a loved one's life. Um, ultimately, however, one must accept life as it is now, and perhaps come to terms with a life that is different than originally planned. Forgiveness, a key element of successful recovery for those who are left after a suicide, it may be necessary to give oneself permission to forgive the deceased, to forgive God, to, to forgive others, or to forgive yourself. It's important to understand that forgiveness does not mean condoning the actions of the one who committed suicide or others who may have done wrong. Forgiveness is not a one-time event, but a process that may require help. Now, there's anger management courses that you can avail within the walls of the prisons. Uh, There's the different religious groups that come in as volunteers, our Catholic volunteers or other volunteers from other Christian communions that may have very positive and beneficial things to, to say about forgiveness and assisting ourselves to move on. For those of us who live the sacramental life, of course, the, the sacrament of penance and reconciliation is hugely important. And I can tell you as a priest of Jesus Christ, it is hugely important to us on your behalf. We want to be there for you. We want to share in the joyful presence of the gift of the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead that allows us to hear those words of absolution. I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Notice that it's in the name of the triune God. It's not in the name of Father Harry Dean. It is in name of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is there for us. So we want to remember forgiveness. You may need to hold on to lack of forgiveness for a while, but eventually you have got to let yourself receive the loving mercy of God into forgiveness. Now, let's say that you're at a point where because of certain things that are that are you're experiencing like insomnia or recurring nightmares and inability to resume a normal routine uh, like requiring you to get back to work if you've got a job there in prison uh, caring for responsibilities around you if you're if you're a person not living the incarcerated life or like for your household or your children again that isolation that uh, keeps us to uh, unable to connect with others and to share grief if, if you start to abuse uh, substances of any kind that's when it's time to start letting yourself get warm up to the idea of professional help there is no harm in profession there's no harm in, in in your your pride or your esteem or anything else professional help if you can f- find the counselor that can really connect with you that's going to be something that can really help you and i understand that for a lot of our incarcerated souls uh, sometimes that's not always as available for some in some units as it is for others and so this this kind of suggestion may not uh, work for you Allow yourself the consolation of the divine physician uh, to allow Jesus himself to be your counselor. Get into your word again. Allow yourself to engage those passages that talk about St. Paul is really good for this. St. Peter is really good for this. The Gospels are really good for this, where Jesus is actively healing, because that helps remind us that Jesus is actively healing, not just the personages that we read in, in the Bible, but we as people in that history of salvation. He wants us to find that healing in him as well. 
We want to switch gears at this point. We've been talking a great deal about how we as the survivors uh, of a suicide can try and cope, can try and grieve, can try and mourn, can try and heal. But now, as has been so often suggested as a technique and all that, to go beyond ourselves and to look out for the needs of other people, the next section covers who should be told about the suicide. In particular, should children be told? And again, from this series, it's the Veritas series of the Knights of Columbus. They have a response to that. And Deacon Ronnie, I'd ask you to help us begin that sharing. Now, do tell close friends and family members about the suicide. Ideally, family and friends can help one another to heal. Uh, details of a loved one's death, however, are deeply personal, and no one is obligated uh, to tell those outside of their immediate circle that a loved one has committed suicide. Children grieve and many experience the same range of emotions as adults do, but they may express these emotions differently. Because of their more limited language skills and lack of maturity, they are especially susceptible to feelings of guilt and abandonment. And they may um, have some magical thinking about the death, believing it is to have been caused something by what they did or did not do. Generally, discussing the loss with children provides an opportunity to discover what they already know about death, including their misconceptions and fears and provide them with information, compassion, and comfort. So we just meet, we meet, the, meet them where they are with some understanding of, of what the skill sets that they, they may not, probably could not be expected to have at that age. But state that uh, the loved one has died rather than gone away so that there is no misunderstanding. There's that sense of they may not be physically uh, present to you at the moment, but they will always be a part of you. That's a big difference. And um, it's important to reassure them that death was not their fault, that they will never be abandoned or neglected, and help them to understand that unhappiness over the death is natural, and there's no amount of sadness that will affect parents' love for their children. And um, alternative memorial may be helpful if it seems that attending the funeral would not be a good idea. Let me jump in real quick there on this part where it says it's important uh, to reassure them that the death was not their fault because children are centered on self because that's just kind of where they're at. And then it says, and that they will never be abandoned or neglected. Now, for many of our flock, that's precisely what you were. You were both abandoned and neglected. So when you hear a pamphlet like this say that to you, keep in mind that, yes, they are reaching out to everyone who can read the pamphlet. Um, and while this may be more consistent with the lives of people on the outside of prison, we do recognize that many of you, many of you, absolutely lived lives of abandonment and neglect. Therefore, it may be super hard for you to lock in on that particular um, being able to say that as an adult to one of your children or to a niece or nephew if they're coming for visitation or, or whatever it might be. Your concrete experience of having been abandoned and neglected may really get uh, make it more difficult for you to be able to affirm that. But that's where stepping outside of ourself on behalf of the other can really be something that assists our very selves. If I have experienced the deep and abiding pain of abandonment and neglect, but I can try and reassure someone else that the, the, the uh, path of their life isn't going to be like what I experienced, 
you can be a powerful witness for that, even even in sharing what you felt as an abandoned or neglected person, because the child might be feeling that, too, unnecessarily. You felt it because you were abandoned or neglected. But the child, you know, they have that sense. And you can say, look, that that's not what you're not going to have that. You've got, you know, who's there with you, whatever the caregiver is that's brought them there for visitation. Um, I know what that feels like, but I can tell you, you don't have to, to feel that. So I didn't want to pass over that because so many of our, our folks do experience that. Well, and, and to that, Father Harry, I just add the fact that that what a wonderful opportunity to uh, to share with that child that uh, even though we as uh as are imperfect, uh, the one who is perfect is Jesus Christ, and he will never abandon them. And so an opportunity to say that I am here with you now, in the midst of this dark pain, as dark as it is, there's a light of hope. And his presence, his consolation, his peace is always there. So I think that's an opportunity for us to be able to, that's who we hold on to. That's who, that's who we, we gravitate to, and that's where we'll find our strength. Uh, older children may uh, need encouragement to talk about their feelings and are more likely to blame themselves and others. So avoiding the subject can have negative consequences. In general, children uh, may appear insensitive to the death or may experience express their hurt, anger, or guilt by acting out in a negative ways. Uh, try to avoid the, the child's feeling affirm. Uh, firm, affirm, excuse me, affirm the child's feeling while correcting inappropriate expression, means of expressions and provide proper outlets for, for expression. Uh, for example, and, and the, the series gives us this example, if a child is angry while having some kind of a punching bag or a way to expand their energy to help them express their emotions uh, appropriately, try to be open to questions. Uh, readily admit not having all the answers if necessary. A child is isolating himself. Speak to teachers coaches, uh, scout leaders, or, or adults that, who the child knows well. They may be able to help to reach a child who is angry with about the loss of a loved one. And, of course, professional help can be beneficial as well uh, if the uh, dynamics persist. Uh, being shut out by one's child can be difficult to accept, but try to understand that the child's feelings are not rational and that children, just like anyone else coping with a loss by suicide, needs non-judgmental support. Talking to children about suicide may be difficult, but it is important for their adjustment. If the deceased is a key figure in the child's life, secrecy is generally not helpful, especially for those children who have the developmental maturity to understand suicide. Attempts to protect the child by withholding information or hiding the nature of the death can become problematic. Eventually, children will learn pieces of the truth from other sources, which may increase their confusion and possibly lead to misconceptions or self-blame. So in part, if I'm reading between the lines there, they're talking about you as the primary adult in the life of that child, even from your place of incarceration, really need to be taking the bull by the horns of being the primary message giver about the reality and context of this suicide. So withholding information also damages your credibility and not only that matter, but other matters moving forward because they'll bring it up. You know how kids are. They don't forget anything, such as when attempting to reassure the child that he or she is not responsible for the suicide. At the same time, it's not necessary that children know everything. Simply explain what happened to uh, happened and give 
age-appropriate responses to questions. Again, it may be helpful to consult a child psychologist in making these determinations or, obviously, for those of you who are incarcerated who don't have access to a child psychologist, potentially material by child psychologists. Read different pieces that sound good to you. You can find ones that are specific to Catholic care providers that hopefully you can have get sent in or uh, have some way of, of getting your, your hands on that information. Read it through, appropriate it uh, to how you talk to your children, and then lend it to them. Um, whatever those resources might be from your families, from other uh, inmates that, that may have access to those kinds of things, uh, those are all aids that you can basically put yourself in a prep mode. Uh, like you're going to give a retreat to your child on how they specifically can cope with this suicide. Practice it. Uh, sit down and, and talk to yourself as if you're talking to your child. And then when you get that phone call or that day of visitation, you're ready to rock and roll with that thing. And you can you can just roll it out there for them. And even maybe think in terms of because, you know, your child think in terms of what they might come back at you with. Have yourself some ready responses to their manners of thinking and questioning so you're, you're not taken uh, off guard. But just, you know, kind of get yourself prepared. And in that way, you don't have to have uh, that kind of intimidation that might go with that. In our next section, we want to move on then. as And this is generally speaking, you know, how do we help children? Well, this next one is how do we help uh, others in general? We did a lot of work in our previous sessions about how do I help myself? And that's good. Because i got to help me before I can help other people. But now, as the pamphlet moves us forward on coping with suicide, it's giving us more and more wonderful material on how to put ourselves in the role of caregiver. So how does one support those grieving over a loss by suicide? Approaching someone who has a lost one uh, to suicide can be very difficult. And avoiding uh, any mention of the departed out of misguided desire to protect it, the bereaved and the hope not of discussing the suicide will help those grieving either to forget or recover more quickly our common mistakes. Uh, in other words, we, we should not do that. Acceptance and compassion, along with a prudent appraisal, appraisal of the ways to aid the bereaved, offering physical uh, practical assistance with uh, shopping or cooking or driving can be helpful. Again, make a sincere offer of emotional support whether uh, communicated in a card or a letter, uh, by phone or in person, and give the bereaved permission to talk about the suicide. Here's an example that the series uh, presents for us. It says, I'm sorry for your loss. If you need to talk, I'm available, period. It's a very good way to approach the bereaved person and simply ask, how are you doing, and then just listen. I don't think any of us can suit up and show up and show and say we can solve this for you because that would be the wrong thing to do. And for me, I think it's even more to it. I can't know how you feel. I just can't possibly know how you feel, but I can understand because I've had losses in my life as well. So that's where that's where we meet them. Uh, and but just offering yourself to them uh, with, with your expression of sorrow that's heartfelt. And if you're if you ever need to talk, just simply let them know I'm available. There's some common responses that are not helpful to the bereaved, and I've just mentioned them. And I'll go over them again. That can uh, come across as judgmental or, or, or hurtful. For example, one should not ask why the departed, the departed committed suicide. Don't ask that question. The, the bereaved may not have a ready answer to this question, 
and only asking highlights that point. In addition, avoid remarks that suggest the death was God's will or not the depart, or that the departed is better off because he or she is no longer suffering. Um, if a child has died, do not suggest that they can always have another one or that they should be grateful for the siblings who survived. Neither these types of statements nor pointing to out to any other potentially constructive aspect of the loss is helpful. And while such statements may be well meant, uh, they um, will seem insensitive to the bereaved. And also, claiming to know, I mentioned this earlier, but claiming to know how the bereaved feels is not helpful unless the similar loss was also by suicide. And although the, the, the sudden and unexpected death of a loved one may, on the surface, seem similar, grief from a loss due to suicide usually involves difficult, con- contemplated, contemplated, and more intense feelings of rejection, guilt, and shame. So it's a very complicated situation. And although any loss can be difficult or even excruciating, losing someone to suicide is simply different than any other type of bereavement that we are faced with. We mentioned this before, but it's worthy mentioning again because the pamphlet picks it up and mentions it again. There is no timetable for grief. I think for a lot of us, and especially men, men, we we tend to say, look, there needs to be a, a beginning and end of, of grieving. Just get over it. You know, just move on. And, you know, yes, there's a lot of material in here that that is about moving on. That's about restoring ordinary life. That's about looking beyond uh, the, the immediacy of what's going on and, and being able to, to divert our attention. But at the same time, grieving is still going to be going on up to, to the, the time, the point, excuse me, where time does heal. So there's no timetable for, for grief, as, as the material says here, and each person mourns in an individual way. Therefore, do not assume that bereavement will end after a few weeks, a few months, or even after the one-year anniversary of the death. Motivated by concern over the intensity or length of grief, some comforters may tell the bereaved that it is time to get over it and move on, which can be experienced by the survivor as criticism. Survivors of suicide will continue to need care and support even after the first few weeks or months have passed. Be aware of difficult times for the bereaved, such as anniversaries, birthdays, holidays, in a gentle manner. Share concerns about signs of depression, such as social withdrawal, or speak to others who are close to the person about these concerns. Encourage the bereaved to obtain professional help if this seems necessary, and do not be afraid to seek the advice of a mental health professional. It is important not to ignore signs that the person may be in greater distress than that which can be addressed through the usual social support processes. And I know that in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, the reality of suicide is not lost on the people that run the show. They are aware of it. They are concerned about it. They they do have a, an idea that this is something that should be attended to. I know there's a, a lot of different opinions on, on what I just said, but I do know that there is an official uh, reality there that wants to attend to the reality of suicide. We may not all agree on how well or effective it is, but it's there. 
So I think, you know, if, if this is genuine and the person really is one of those ones whose behaviors are showing genuine signs, unfortunately, and those of you who live on the outside of prison may not realize, but oftentimes uh, in the incarcerated life, there will be some who present symptoms of different things that don't really have them. Uh, because they've got ulterior motives for for the healthcare system to get them out of certain situations or to move them from from one physical location to another, et cetera. And, and I don't expect you to understand that. You who live the incarcerated life know exactly what I'm talking about. But when things are genuine, the people that are there managing the units, um, they're going to get it. And if, if the person really is beyond um, networking with other inmates, with with kind-hearted uh, corrections officers, whatever it may be. Ultimately, there can be connectivity to actual mental health professionals. Not only that, but in, in extreme situations where we see where someone is, is moving in that direction, um, they take the preventative uh, uh, direction of uh, placing someone in their presence uh, 24 hours. So we have the uh, a constant direct observation or CDO as they would call it uh, internally where there, there is that awareness that, you know, things aren't just right anymore. And, and I, I'm, I'm having difficulty with this. I don't have to handle it. And so again, it's, it's, it's a movement of support and it's a movement of concern. You know, we've, we've seen, we've, we've seen these markers that have presented themselves as saying that this is something going on with you and we care enough about you that uh, we're not punishing you. We want to help you. And we're there for you in that regard. So let's say you've done that. You know, you've, you've reached out. You've done these some of these wonderful things that they they uh, they recommend as a caregiver to, to someone, and they they reject you. Um, the pamphlet goes on. Do not take it personally if a survivor declines support. Promise to contact him or her again later, and then follow through. They may not be ready to share or may have difficulty trusting others, which is, as you guys know, in, in prison, that's that's often there, after feeling rejected or abandoned by the deceased loved one, because that's where they're at in processing the suicide. Perhaps the person is experiencing great shame or embarrassment or needs time to be certain that the offer of support from you is sincere and not merely a platitude, meaning it's just being said for the sake of being said, or worse, that it's part of an agenda for you to find out about their business and then exploit it. You just have to you have to rely on the gift of God to get them beyond that, that you're the real deal and that you're really there on their their behalf. And as it says here, gentle and patient follow up is the best way to demonstrate genuine sincerity. That's just not a one off. That's again, giving that person uh, uh, the space and time needed for them to process what they've just taken in, especially if it's a phone call or delivered in a JPay. But now that you've been delivered, uh, notice that, that this has happened, uh, availing yourself to come back and see them uh, and, and make that presence with them and understand that it's not, it's not a, as it says here, um, they, they're not interested in what you've have to offer them. They're just not ready to, to process that yet because they haven't got it through, through their own timetable as a matter. So most people will need support only um, – um, in their own time, if if so, and and that's that's something we have to be be able to um, to, to be aware of on our end as well. Uh, most people will need uh, support only occasionally, if ever. While a few will have greater needs, sometimes it can be uh, difficult to balance taking care of others with taking care of oneself. So this one's uh, inadvertently encouraging someone to rely too heavily on one person's support can easily lead to the 
proverbial situation of trying to rescue a drowning victim. In the process, both the rescuer and the victim drown. Conversely, draw, drawing from one who is suffering because his need um, because his need is overwhelming can leave him feeling hurt and abandoned. Rather, in a general manner, encourage the survivor to reach out to others as well. So there's this network of help. That's it's not just uh, you're not the lone ranger out there and in, in, in availing your, this someone, but you're asking for a team to come in and help. Uh, so that the, he or she may uh, be assured of, of, of the available support that um, when it's needed most. And the potential difficulties brought on by offering support can be discouraging. However, su- survivors need support. Let me just say that again. That's something they need. And the survivor needs becomes overwhelming. Seek outside help. So those are uh, many of the ways that the uh, material here encourages us to assist others And that in assisting others, we can definitely assist ourselves as well. In our next segment, um, we will look at what are the signs that a a person is at risk for committing suicide, some conditions associated with a higher risk for suicide, and what should be done to help someone who is at risk for committing suicide. To close today, a prayer that I borrow from Catholic Doors Ministry. God, lover of souls, you who... Hold dear what you have made and spare all things, for they are yours. Look gently upon your servants who are at risk for suicide, and by the blood of the cross forgive their sins and failings. Remember the faith of those who mourn and satisfy their longing for that day when all will be made new again in Christ our risen Lord, who lives and reigns with you forever and ever. Amen. Brother, will you walk with me?